Entrepreneurs often have similar characteristics. Energy, passion, vision. But why do some soar to success while others struggle to climb? Less than 2% of women-owned businesses in North America ever achieve a million dollars a year in annual revenue. Why is that? And how do we dramatically increase that number? Welcome to Breakthrough with your host, Sarah Roach-Lewis. Sarah offers conversations with the ambitious women entrepreneurs in that 2% to help you break through. Now, here is Sarah Roach-Lewis. Well, hello, ambitious one. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Breakthrough. Perhaps you have a bold ambition or an emerging desire to hit the million-dollar mark and beyond in your business. You may be well on your way or just starting out. Regardless, this show is for you. Today, I want to welcome Kimberly Lewis, co-founder of Curlmix, to the show. In the past five years, Kimberly and her business and life partner, Tim, have experienced extraordinary growth in life and business. They have um, pivoted and niched on their product offer. They had a baby. They scaled their business to more than $5.5 million in sales last year. It's got a $12 million valuation. And they turned down a $400,000 offer on Shark Tank. Jeepers! First of all, congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, you have had an amazing journey over the last few years. Tell me, do you have to pinch yourself or are you up to speed with where you are with your past? Um, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I think, you know, it's that moving goalpost. And, and in that and that part I'm really trying to, like, fix in my mind um, because, I, you know, it's always like, okay, what about next? What, about, what am I doing next? What am I doing next? And it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, so what I end up doing to, to – to bring me back to where I used to be and how I used to feel when I was just dreaming about this. Um, my husband, he would show me like pictures of my phone for like what we used to be doing or how our house used to look before we moved into our manufacturing facility. Or he'll show me pictures of goals I wrote down and took pictures of so that I would have a record of them. And I think my goal was like 3 million or whatever, but in like three years, you know, and then it was like, and you know, he was like, Kim, look at this. Like, you know, this September we've already hit that goal. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, you know, I kind of freaked out or, I, on my Instagram, when we were doing maybe like 50000 a month or something like that, I um, I wrote down all these things like Shark Tank, HSN, like all these big goals and <clears throat> they kind of all happened in like one year. And so, I'll, yeah, so I do those things to help me stop the moving uh, goalposts and kind of really sit in what we've done and appreciate it. So this year, I don't have any crazy big goals. It's really more about profitability in my business. Um, and getting healthy physically. So you can imagine some things do um, take a toll, which were, you know, I was pregnant, and I, so I didn't go work out pretty much for almost the whole year, was not eating healthy. Um, and so this year, I'm really taking that time to focus on myself. And so important, because you, before we hopped on this call, you're at five and a half million now. And you said, you know, your goal is to get to 100 million in the next couple of years. You have to be healthy. in order. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I do. And, and I think, you know, I often talk to my clients about this idea of creating a life and a business. Um, and the business actually is there to help our life. And the last thing we want to do is create a nightmare where we don't have time for ourselves. Yes. 
which is yeah. kind of a challenge, right? When you um, when you have these big dreams, so it's all complicated. But listen, before we go too far down a path, tell me a little bit about Curl Mix. Um, yeah, tell me about your business. So Curl Mix is a clean beauty brand for curly hair. We help women get the best wash and go ever. So when I, what is a wash and go? A wash and go is, you know how your hair looks when it's wet and curly? That's kind of how it looks when it dries. <clears throat> a little bit more volume, um, and a little bit tighter curl, but that's pretty much the idea. And we really want women to commit to their curls. A lot of times we're told to straighten it, to chemically treat it, to color it, to this, to that. No, we want you to commit to what your hair looks like in its natural state. Amazing. And it's all natural and vegan and full of goodness for your hair. Yes. Yes, it is. So cool. Um, so from what I understand, really, in many ways, you did the classic creating a business by solving your own problem. Um, so, and you had a few sort of attempts at entrepreneurship along the way. Tell me a bit about that entrepreneurial journey for you. So my actual, <clears throat> my entrepreneurship journey started in 2013. I, we started our first business as a social network for natural hair. So basically think like a Facebook, but for hair. Um, and we did that for about a year and a half and I didn't realize, I didn't figure out how to monetize it until the end, which is I had to be an advertising platform and basically pay for, allow people to buy, you know, space on my website or whatever. And I got my first check for like 200 bucks uh, from a hair care company to advertise on our site. And I was like, oh no, I can't, I can't, this is not, we're not going to scale like this. And I was like, you know what, this is not going to be my big idea. I'm just going to put this away. But what I was doing at the time, I was basically creating content for experts in our industry. So I was recording videos for them, and then I would post it on my side, but in on theirs. And so I, when I say I recorded, I mean, I filmed it, I edited it, I did everything, right? All they had to do was show up and record the content with me. And so doing that helped me build relationships that I kept throughout my, um, in my time in the industry. And so then after the Natural Hair Academy, we, um, I told my husband that the next business we launch, we make money on day one because we didn't make, I didn't make any money for that year and a half. Uh, but along the way, I picked up skills in photography, web design, um, graphic, like all kinds of hustling types of skills. And we launched Chromix as a do-it-yourself box uh, the following year after watching Shark Tank. So basically, I used to make my own hair care products all the time. I would go to Whole Foods, spend about 400 bucks, come home, DIY my kitchen, and like kind of ruin it. And my husband was like, um, Kim, well, no, basically, I was like, there has to be somebody who was sending this to me in a box because it was just a nightmare. And my husband was a cook at the time in our house, so he got tired of me ruining the kitchen. Uh, and so uh, I was like, is anybody doing this? This could be a box. And he's like, well, Kim, why don't you do it? And I was like, well, there's a reason it doesn't exist. You know, nobody wants it. And then he was like, no, Kim, you know, just give it a shot. So we gave it a shot, launched Chromix, did that for two years. And we didn't get more than 140000 in revenue in one single year. The first year did one thirty. The second year we did 140 and I was like, wait, this isn't my big idea either <laughs> because it's not growing as fast as it should grow if people really want it. <clears throat> and so when it, we realized it wasn't growing fast enough and we're like, well, why? And we learned that it was a vitamin and not a painkiller. So basically hmm. it was nice to have, um, it was too novelty. People would get it and then it would sit in their house for months until they actually got around to making it. And we're like, well, we can't scale a business on something that's just fun to do. We, you know, we have to have something that's uh, solving a real problem. And so we went back to our customers and asked them, well, what do you guys want us to make? And they were like, can you make your best-selling box, the flaxseed gel? 
we want that. We can't find it in stores. And so we made, we pre-made that box. And so hundreds of hours. And we were like, oh, I was like, this is what people want. They don't want these boxes. And so we literally, in a matter of like two or three months after that, we pivoted the entire business, top of January, 2018, basically started from zero dollars in sales. Uh, lowest one in sales ever was like about 3,000 bucks in January. And then we went to 8,000 in February. And then we went to 16,000 in March. And then 30,000 um, the month after. So we just kind of like kept doubling um, for about the next five or six months. And then we ended up uh, at about 100,000 in sales when we went on Shark Tank. And so that we were like, we're projecting a million. I was like, but we don't know. In the back of our minds, we were like, we don't know if we're going to actually make a million. But we ended up hitting the million. Yeah. Um, and we were like, oh, this is the path we should be on. And so we just started making, we turned our best-selling boxes into a hair care line and then built the line backwards almost because we were building it based on our customers' recommendations. Amazing. And that I, I had wondered because that was, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a pivot. And sometimes those pivots are hard, but it sounds yeah. like this one actually wasn't, it was a no brainer. Well, it was hard because I didn't. So the month that we stopped doing the boxes, we had six months of content lined up for the next six boxes. So we had, we had already done the photos for the, the boxes. We had already done the videos. We had done the photo, everything. And I was like, we're literally throwing away about ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars if we don't continue on the boxes. And they were like, but the boxes are not what people want. And we can tell because our sales are declining. And so we were just like, you know what? We're, and Timothy and I, we both went to uh, University of Illinois. And he was an economics major and I was a business major. So we understand some of the concepts of like sunk cost fallacy, right? Like that money's already spent. Don't go. It's the whole idea of don't go and throw on good money after bad, right? The good money in this case was our time. We've already spent the money on something that wasn't working. Let's try to do it better next time instead of just doing it the other way because it's the easiest way, you know? Um, so it was scary doing that, pivoting in January in 2018. It was also scary that first month when we only had $3,000 in sales because we forego <laughs> We uh, let go of all of our subscription revenue. Um, and so we just were like, even though it wasn't a lot, you know, our subscription revenue was about three to $5,000. That was still subscription revenue. So we were like, you know what? We're canceling the subscriptions. So that month we did $3,000 one-off sales. And then I was going to quit. And my husband was like, no, Kim, give it a shot. Like, you know, we knew it was going to take some time. It's January. We pivoted. Just give it, give it some time. And then the next month we ended up doing eight. And then the next month, I think we, we didn't do 16. We did 30 that next month. So it went three, eight, 30. Um, and so that's when we kind of got like, Oh wow, this is, this is really something. And then my husband quit his job to come work for the company because it started growing. And our best month as a subscription box was like $17,000. Wow. So it just kind of took off really fast. And so that's why I always tell people to make what your customers ask you to, uh, to make because they're the ones who are going to pay you. Let's just stop and listen and pause for that. <laughs> Make what your customers want because they're going to pay you. Amazing. <laughs> I think too, um, you know, when, when I listen to this, like really, I, I introduced you saying this was over four years, but this pivot, like it was beginning of 2018. You made, a, you had a million, just over a million in revenues in 2018. Last year was five and a half. Um, and in that last year, you, you know, the, the Shark Tank experience. So I thought that was interesting. So part of the reason why you turned that down was because they didn't know anything about the beauty experience. But tell me this, uh, is there some street cred that goes with being the people who turned down 400000 from Shark Tank? <laughs> you know, it's funny. 
<clears throat> people are they're on opposite ends of the spectrum they're either like good for you like you knew your business you knew your numbers all of our investors are like okay they're smart right and that led to other investors who wanted to reach out to us most of america is like you're dumb you waste your time on the shark tank you took an opportunity away from somebody else and so <laughs> so it's, it's 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 really funny because i guess you get street credit entrepreneurs but you get the the hate from uh, <laughs> general consumers who watch the show. And so it seemed like they thought we were just going on the show, not planning to take a deal at all. And that's not true. Um, we actually were considering it. We just had hard numbers that we wouldn't go past because we knew we might have to raise more money after that. Because 400000 was still not, we wanted to raise about a million if we were to raise money. Um, but that valuation was super low. I think at the time Robert was valuing us at, I think, $2 million. Right. Um, and but we could get a seven million dollar valuation from a, a typical investor, so it just didn't make sense. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I think it really does highlight that um, some of those challenges that we hear about in that investing world that you know there are some gender bias there. And I was reading something the other day about that there's not actually a lot of investing in the beauty industry. And mm -hmm. it doesn't take a lot to, to, to draw that, that path between VCs being, you know, like there's so very little that uh, women-owned businesses get funded because most, you know, significant number of VCs are men. So not necessarily really being able to see the value in company, in some of these companies. So I'm curious about, because since then, you actually did – raise the funds that you were looking for. So what has been your experience in that raising funds investing world? So I know the numbers are abysmal. I think for black women specifically, it's like we get less than a percent. Yeah. Or it's something around like we get a tenth of a percent of capital. So which is crazy. It's like less than half a percent. Um, but black folks make up about 16% of the population. Um, and so I didn't even bother originally trying to raise money for my business. Um, I was like, if I could show them I have real revenue and I make a million dollars, it would be a lot easier for me to raise a million dollars. And so I still wasn't even on the raising money train after Shark Tank. I was like, you know, I think I was talking to some investors. I got an offer, didn't like the offer. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to ride it out. And, and my invest, my advisor said the same thing. And so then we, um, uh, the, the episode appeared the next year in March. So 2019, March. And I got a call from an investor um, and he was basically saying that, you know, me and my friend, which is the CEO of LinkedIn, uh, Jeff, you know, we want to invest a million dollars in you. Can Will you let us? And so, and I was like, sure. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And, and, his, and his idea was that, so his credit, if we only invest in people who look like us, um, then we'll only, you know, that's not the future and they're white men. Right. And so they're like, white men are not um, what the future is going to look like. And, and so I want to make sure that I'm also investing in people who don't look like me. And so, and I got that connection through Arlen from backstage capital. She knew him who introduced him to me um, who also brought in Jeff. And so it's not like um, I did this on my own. I, you know, I, I definitely had their help too. And so, but I think it takes having investors who know that, who know that, you know, if white men are, uh, they have 90% of the venture capital because they're funding, you know, these different businesses and these are the ones that are growing that have white male founders. 
um, and that's all that's ever going to be. And so he's taking it a step further um, and investing in a black woman, even though he doesn't understand curly hair care. He kind of only understands numbers. And he's like, you're making money. So I'm not even going to argue with whether or not your idea is valid. Right. It is. So it becomes a matter of do I want to invest in you? And so I'm going to go ahead and take a chance. And so I, I respect him and appreciate him very much for that. And so uh, that is extraordinary and what a great story. And I appreciate that, you know, you, ha you didn't do that all on your own and really making that strategic decision to not bump up against those barriers that you were going to see in those early days, but just bypass those by spending the time focusing on your business and making sure that it was profitable, knowing that you could make the money. And then really the investors came to you. It's, it's amazing. It's a great story. And you know, so, and I did the one month, I think it was December, the end of 2018, the year I knew we were going to make the million. I had um, investors who wanted to have meetings with me and I was taking meetings. I was doing all this stuff and my revenue sacrificed. Mm. So in December, we should have had like much higher revenues because it was basically the holiday season. And we didn't because I couldn't send emails because I couldn't work on the marketing. Like I just didn't have time because I was talking to investors and I was like, this is for the birds. I was like, I'm not. I'm not doing this again. I was like, because fundraising is a full-time job. Um, and you still, even when you get the money, you still have to make money. So it's not like having, getting an investment means you make money all the time, right? You still have to have a plan for profitability. So Absolutely. I always caution people um, against that when it comes to raising, you know, if you can let the money come to you, you'll have a much better time negotiating terms, um, getting the check faster and not sacrificing your business's growth because of it. I'm just going to stop us right there. It's time for a commercial, and I want people to soak that in. So I'll be back um, in just a few minutes with Kimberly Lewis. Thanks so much. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you ready to grow your business to the next level? Check out SRL Solutions for more information on training, coaching, and lots of resources for building your business sustainably and profitably. As a partner who helps you strategize and plan, Sarah Roach-Lewis helps you turn your vision into reality. She helps you identify the right area of focus at the right time. Visit srl.solutions to find out more and for a free consultation. That's srl.solutions. If you're an entrepreneur, you want to focus on the big picture, but a growing business requires compliance, regulations, tax issues, and more. Listen to Candy Messer and BizHelp for you. Our program takes the guesswork out of the equation in order to give you the answers and peace of mind, from payroll to labor laws to entrepreneurial tips. You'll find something new with each week's episode. BizHelp for you can be heard every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Breakthrough with Sarah Roach-Lewis. To reach Sarah or her guest on today's program, please send an email to Sarah at srl.solutions. Again, that's Sarah at srl.solutions. Now, back to this week's episode of Breakthrough. 
Welcome back to Breakthrough. I'm Sarah Roach Lewis, and I'm here with Kimberly Lewis of Curl Mix. And uh, we are talking all things business and growing quickly. So, Kimberly, tell me this. What do you see as some of those real strengths that you have in business? And what are some of those areas where you're still growing? A strength of mine would have to be that I'm a people person. And so I think my staff um, loves working for Curl Mix because they know that I'm really transparent. Uh, and as you can probably tell in the podcast, I probably share way more than a lot of founders would share, right? Most people don't talk about their revenue. They don't talk about um, the things that are difficult. They don't talk about the things that um, are just really taboo, I feel. Sometimes I listen to founder interviews and they're just very much like, we're growing, we're great. We're, you know, and I just, those are, uh, you know. So <laughs> I'm really transparent with my staff as well. Um, I show them the numbers, I tell them the why, um, and I have them in mind. And so for, uh, an example of that is that we don't pay minimum wage to our um, production staff. We pay almost double. So I don't think that just because, like, if your job is filling bottles or labeling, that your job isn't as important as somebody who's selling uh, because we, we need to get the product, right? Um, we offer 401k plans to our team members. Uh, we're a startup, you know, but we take care of our people. And that comes from me being a people person and me being really transparent. Um, I would say... Uh, something I'm working on is uh, growth versus profitability. So like you can imagine if you go from 1 million to 5 million in sales, um, a lot of things break. So, and especially when you have a large amount of money in the bank account, you think, oh, things are fine. We have money, but that's not necessarily how you should look at it. And what I'm learning is that the reason founders end up raising a series A, which is like, you know, for four or five million dollars or ten million dollars, is because they kind of squandered that one million that they got in their seat. They didn't really know what they were doing. And by the time they lost that million, they're like, okay, I, I know what I'm doing now. Now you can give me four or five and I can like do better with this amount of money. Um, I'm trying to avoid that part. <laughs> I'm trying not to waste four or five million. And so some this, so I would say one of my um, weaknesses has been budgeting. So I am uh, working on that now and planning. I, I guess not budgeting. It would really be strategy. So I've been talking to a brand consultant of mine, and she's like, your strength can miss execution. You, like, get it done. If, if somebody tells you what it is, it'll be done tomorrow. And it will be. But a lot of times when you execute that fast, you didn't really plan out a strategy for the year or how that's going to impact your next quarter or how that's going to impact your next year, 22, three years, whatever. And so – Trying to put things in place strategically is something I'm working on, and it's a muscle I'm trying to flex. So basically slowing down. <laughs> and, you know, isn't that interesting because uh, so your greatest strength, one of your real great strengths, is that speed of execution. And yet at this point, when you've, when you've grown so quickly because you've just done to now stop and say, okay, now I need to have some strategic growth behind me. Really yeah. cool. I, I was listening to an early podcast of yours. And one of the things I was so struck by was it seemed like anytime you had a challenge, you just Googled it and found the answer. And I <laughs> Yes. You know, and I'm so funny, Sarah, uh, like when people, I mean, entrepreneurs and they're like, they'll just run off a list of questions to me because they feel like they need me to say it. And I'm just like, all these things you could have Googled or listened to the podcast that I did, you know, with uh, another place. And I just, it's funny because that is what I do. I Google. 
<laughs> well, and I think, you know, I, I, I read that you were described as a millennial entrepreneur. And so I'm curious about those. Sort of, and I think part of that millennial entrepreneur is like, I just Google stuff because that's what you do, right? How else do you find out information? But I'm curious about those intersections between, you know, race, gender, age. How do you think those factors, you know, do you think about those factors? And how have they, how do they shape your success and the challenges you face? Um, so when I think about, okay, I'm going to try to um, put some more parameters on the question. So, so it's easier for me to answer. Um, so when I think about those uh, different identifiers, right, how do they affect what I'm searching for or fixing my problems? I think it's, um, it's, how do they shape your challenges and the successes that you've experienced in your business? So I realized that when it comes to those different um, ways people identify or those, just any of those things, that affects how you perceive hiring, right? Um, if you might get somebody who's, you know, over 50 and you're like, well, can they do this job? And so what I have learned is that some of my older employees are the best employees because they're used to working. <laughs> they are used to working and they're not expecting all these like breaks or like handouts or whatever like, like that some, some of the younger folks expect. So what's funny is I actually love hiring older people. Um, and I say older, I just mean older than me. I don't necessarily mean, you know, whatever yeah. that means. Sure. Hopefully no one takes offense to that. Um, and then what I've also learned is that um, everyone has a place in the company. And so, yes, like we talk to black women um, and our staff is majority black women because we, that's who we're speaking to. However, we do have some people on, on staff who are not black. Um, we have people who are very various ethnicities and we also employ a lot of moms. So a lot of people would say, oh, moms will have time to be to, to work. They don't have time to do this. You need to be at home with your kid or there's no way you can do this job if you have a baby at home with you. And that's just not true. Moms uh, have been... And I know this because I'm a mom. So I have my kids at home with me while I'm working. And yes, there's some things that kind of fall uh, slip through the cracks, but moms are really efficient and they're really good at making decisions. Okay, this has to get done now because I can't do it later because my baby's going to be doing blah, 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 blah. And so by kind of going against the, the hiring stereotypes, that's, I think, how we've been able to get really good people and, and, and attract them, right? So, um, and then you also asked about how do they how do those, these different ways of identifying affect challenges in the business? People are coming with all different perspectives. So anytime that me, and let's say our head of marketing thinks that we know how to do something or thinks that we know we should do it this way, our customer service is like, well, the customers are going to say this. And so she's really advocating for them. But I think having all those different perspectives keeps us from having groupthink um, and just doing things because we're all from the same background, same experiences, and this is what we think we should do. Yeah. Yeah, so fair. So, um, how how many staff? How many do you have on staff now? We have about twenty people. Wow! So even that's some fairly significant growth in a couple of years, huh? Yes, and and everyone being employees is also very different than having ten contractors. <laughs> it's a very different level of responsibility, isn't it? Yes, it is very much. So. You know, we were talking at the beginning, but I want to circle back to that. So you are less than 2% of, uh, less than 2% of women owned or co-founded businesses achieve more than seven figures and beyond in the business. So less than 2%. Um, 
So congratulations. We don't always have time to reflect on that. So I'm curious to know, how do you celebrate your wins? You know, my friends think I don't do it enough. And so my friend actually threw me a um, party when we were on Forbes, 30 under 30. She it was like a, a dinner, maybe like 10 of my friends. And she's like, can you have to celebrate this? I was like, well, it's, you know, it's a list. Like, what do you mean? She's like, you have to celebrate. And I was like, okay, fine. So I like let her throw a dinner. Um, and you know what I have been doing? I record myself on my phone. as like a private diary. I figured one day um, this will be valuable. But they also help me kind of go back and look at myself in those different stages. Because writing it doesn't quite capture how you felt. So recording a video, you know, sometimes I end up crying in the video. Sometimes I'm super elated. Um, and no one else has seen these videos. It's just for me. Uh, and so that's how I kind of document, record, and like celebrate, if you will. Mm, that's amazing. What a great idea. So when you're looking at this kind of, you know, like you had said before, when you move this quickly, things break. Yeah. Um, what have you learned from some of those breakages? Those, you know, if we, if we look at what are some of, you know, something that you experienced as a failure that you then were able to turn that into a win or you're looking at how am I going to, you know, address that going forward so that when you're at, you know, there's a real difference between five and a half and a hundred million. Um, so something that broke, right. I would say I was doing all the hiring and I would, you're hiring faster when you have more money in the bank and, uh, you're expected to move fast. So I ended up hiring a few people that really just weren't the best and I had to let them all go. And that was like about three people all around the same time. And, they were with the business less than six months mm. and that's something that broke. And so now moving forward, I'm very, I'm way more careful about how I hire people. I'd much rather have an agency um, that works on a contract basis than to hire an employee. And so now that that's usually what I do first. I look for somebody who's scrappy, who's maybe one or two people in their, in their agency and they're working for maybe three or four clients. And maybe I can be the biggest client because then they'll care the most. Um, and that person's more motivated to perform than let's say an employee that you hired for $40,000, $50,000, because that agency wants to keep your business. So that's something I've learned. And and it's also more flexible because you can let the agency go at any point. Um, And it's way less emotional and way less um, taxing on your business versus like an employee um, where, you know, there are so many things tied with that. There's payroll taxes, there's health insurance, there's 401k stuff. And then they know you personally and they take it personally when they're fired. So that means there are more legal issues. You know, they have to be more careful than there's um, unemployment afterwards. It is way stickier, way stickier um, and messy. So that's something I broke, but I learned moving forward in the future, kind of how to handle it. And it doesn't mean we're not hiring employees. We're definitely still going to hire employees, but it's just like, it gives you perspective. Like, does this job need a full-time employee for the next year or two? Or does this job really just need somebody to work as a contract uh, basis for three months? You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's very smart. And it does allow you to figure out exactly that, how much time is required. And also really getting clear on what the skill set is that you're hiring for. Yes, very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smart. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about is you work with your with your husband. Um, mm-hmm. And so what's that like in terms of, 
of, um, you know, that, that whole experience of, of life and partnership. You know, if I could give my husband an award uh, for being like the most supportive husband, <laughs> I would. <laughs> um, my husband's brilliant. He's like, um, he sacrificed a lot to kind of be the primary caregiver in our relationship. And so, because I mean, I'm, I'm running the business. He's my co-founder, um, but he does a lot with the kids at home. And we both work from home, but for a while he was doing a lot of it. Like I would say 60, 40, 70, 30, where he's doing the majority. And I'm mostly like breastfeeding and like kind of popping in when I need, when I'm needed. Um, but he also is very valuable on the work front. So we just got a uh, caretaking assistant. So my sister is coming to help out with the kids more. And so he's back in the business and it shows, right? So like we're, we're doing better when he's there on the ground, um, you know, whatever is needed. Cause he's kind of, he's a great writer. He's a, a strategy first kind of person. He's um, efficiencies. He's a people person. He kind of just get, goes wherever I need him. If I need him to manage this, create this, execute this, you know? Um, and so honestly, I feel like that's been why we've succeeded. So and grown so fast because I took a person, he was with, so I'll give you context. My husband, he was on who wants to be a millionaire, $100,000 on who wants to be a millionaire. He was, the captain of his academic decathlon team in high school got a perfect score in reading on the ACT. Um, perfect score is 36 out of 36. Wow. Uh, I don't know anybody who got that before. He's um, He basically went to school with U of I. Didn't, he still had two classes left to actually get his degree, but didn't get it and ended up getting into tech and making almost a quarter million dollars a year um, as an IT professional. And so uh, just brilliant, right? But that kind of person is like, I'll support you, Kim. I'll do what, 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 what can we do? I'll get behind you and, and do whatever you need. And so you usually don't find someone who has that kind of capability, be willing to support the other person. Um, and so he just really admires me for my execution and my ability to kind of make things happen. And so I think that him quitting his job three months into the business's pivot and focusing solely on Chromex helped us scale from 1 million to 5 million, you know, uh, because I basically got somebody who was brilliant for free. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so that's what I say. So that, and that's how, and not to say that there aren't problems when we work together, but I honestly think we make a great team. Um, and when we play games, we play games. That's our favorite thing to do. Uh, literally family game nights all the time. We have about a hundred games in our house, literally a hundred board games. Um, we do that for fun. So I think that kind of exercises our brain muscles, um, but also makes us, competitive and ultimately good partners at the end of the day. And because you love games that much, does that help you see your business as a game? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I think at the end of the day, family is all that really matters, right? So my business is a means so that I can spend more time with my family or have a happier family life. So um, the business, although there's a personal tie because I love my customers, um, it is kind of game-like. It's like, if I do this, it's, that's how it feels. It feels like a long game of Catan. Catan is one of our favorite games. So. <laughs> or a long game of Monopoly, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, amazing. So, Kim, when you think about that, so you have, um, how, you, how many kids do you have? Two. So you have two kids. Um, and what does that, so, you know, sort of what's that balance like of, of kids and home and you're running this business out of your house? Um, what does the day-to-day -day look like? 
Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I work too much. So <laughs> my, um, as recently my sister started coming over to watch the kids, uh, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Great. So I wake up, I'm usually the first one up in the house and I go make coffee. I, uh, do a quick scroll through my emails and don't answer anything yet. Just kind of look to make sure there are no fires. And then I'll make sure Tim is up because he's a, he sleeps late. He, this is his thing. He's always done it since high school. So he sleeps late, wake him up. Um, then we have to change the babies because my sister's not here yet. So make sure the babies are changed and set to go for the day. Then she gets here, they're eating. Um, I'm probably on a meeting uh, or a 9 a.m. something. And I'll go through my meetings for the day. Then I'll check my email. Then I'll call anybody I have to call my team. Then I'll kind of go through some strategy stuff, um, some planning stuff. And then I'll execute any deliverables I have from like two to five, like just kind of getting things back to people. And then I might work out afterwards. Um, and what I found now, I didn't used to do this as an employee, but I work through lunch all the time. Um, so that's why I was like, I'm not the healthiest. So Tim will like make lunch. You know, he'll make everybody breakfast, um, make sure the kids have eaten and then set everybody up for their day. So then that's pretty much it. And so I might go into the office on like a Wednesday for our live segment where we show people how to do their hair. Um, I'll go into the office for any content we have to shoot. And then if I am making recipes, um, which I've been doing for this new thing that we launched called Chrome Express, I'll go in on Saturday or Tuesdays to, to, to formulate. And that, that's my week. And then I might travel yeah. a couple times a month. But I try not to travel too much because it's just exhausting. So yeah. I prefer to be at home. And I stick to my diet more when I'm here. Fair enough. Uh, listen, I'm going to take us to break and we'll be right back with Kim Lewis. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business to the next level? Check out SRL Solutions for more information on training, coaching, and lots of resources for building your business sustainably and profitably. As a partner who helps you strategize and plan, Sarah Roach-Lewis helps you turn your vision into reality. She helps you identify the right area of focus at the right time. Visit srl.solutions to find out more and for a free consultation. That's srl.solutions. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are listening to Breakthrough with Sarah Roach-Lewis. To reach Sarah or her guest on today's program, please send an email to sarah at srl.solutions. Again, that's sarah at srl.solutions. Now, back to this week's episode of Breakthrough. Welcome back to Breakthrough. I'm here with Kim, Kimberly Lewis. And Kimberly, tell me what's 
when you think about where you are now, what do you wish you knew when you started out that you know now? That's such a tough question. Um, so what do I wish I knew when I started out? How I started how soon? Do you mean like the first business or do you the mean like when first I first started business. from it? Um, first oh, man, I wish I knew. I wish I had a revenue model. That was like, <laughs> I can't believe I was operating my business just cr creating content. So what I found is that in my previous businesses, I was doing content first, but didn't have a good product to sell. Then when I had a good product to sell, I was focusing all on product. But then when like, let's say Facebook, the election happens and Facebook ads kind of tank, right? Um, and you're kind of waiting out this lull on Facebook ads until... Um, the, the politicians pull their money out of Facebook and now there's, you know, it's cheaper to advertise again. We didn't really have a content strategy. So we, and then we either were making content, but wasn't putting it like in a, it wasn't, we weren't using it like fun. You know, if you make a piece of content, you can break it down into a bunch of smaller pieces, right? And put it all over social and post it every day so you can drive traffic back to your main website. We weren't really doing that. And most people in my space don't. Most people, if you have a good product, people buy your product and you sell more product and show people how to use the product and you never really kind of get into content really outside of your product content. And so I wish I had known how to fuse the two that you need both. You can't just run as a product first company, but you also can't just run as a content machine because you have nothing to sell as a content machine. So that's a lesson I would have told myself. Hmm. Well, I was watching your um, Chromex university um, on on YouTube this morning, and I well, I, I just thought it was amazing and so interesting. And I'm curious, like when you when you talk about that, what role does that play? Is it about needing to educate your current clients about how to use your product, or is that also that lead generation? So it it can work as both. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, though, it was mostly for our current clients because mm -hmm. our product only works if you work. So you have to kind of know how to use them. Um, and so we would give people, you know, I get my results and I show people how to get my results and they would buy the product and not get it. But then they would skip all the steps that we would tell them how to use it, you know? And so we're like, okay, we need to, customer service kept begging us for videos. Like we need to show people, we need to show people. And so we were like, okay, well, we're going to show people, we're going to make it really good. And then maybe this is something that people can find us with. And so that's what birthed Chromex University. And so now we use it as both. We've used it in ads, but we've also used it mostly to re-educate our customers. Mm. So there's a piece there that retention is, you know, so that customer retention is as important as, as new clients. Yes. It's cheaper to keep her, as they say. <laughs> sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me then, you know, so we looked a little bit about what you wish you knew. What is your advice? So imagine, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of where you were um, a few years ago. What is your advice for women who really want to hit that seven figures in their business and beyond that, but they're not there yet? I recommend getting connected with some of the free programs in your area. So I was a part of 1871. It was an incubator for women in STEM. And that's when I was doing the boxes. And that's when I learned that my business was a vitamin, not a painkiller. And I was like, oh, crap. I have a vitamin, not a painkiller. And over the next uh, seven or eight months, I was thinking about a pivot, but didn't do the pivot yet. And so when I got confirmation and validation along the way, I ended up doing the pivot. And then I pivoted, right? Um, but I got connected with another mastermind. Uh, well, it was a Facebook group for entrepreneurs. 
And that was basically just the funnel for the mastermind. Like it was a Facebook group for entrepreneurs. Then there was an event for the entrepreneurs. Um, and it was called Traffic Sales and Profit. It was, um, it's for black folks. Uh, it's a black mastermind. And I think you can, I don't know if you can get in if you're not black. But anyway, it was it's basically to help small black entrepreneurs. And so I found someone who had done it already. And so he was kind of giving me advice on like the mistakes I may have been making or things I wasn't doing right. Like for example, because it's easier to sell old customers new things than new customers anything. And so that's why you should talk to your customers and go back and find out what they want. And so we just kept doing that. And then I got plugged up with the mastermind. And then I started meeting other entrepreneurs who were doing similar things. And they helped me avoid some of the mistakes that first entrepreneurs make with my kind of business. And those communities have just been, they're the reason that we grew. You know, they're the reason that we grew. What were some of those key things that you learned from them? Like, because you're, yeah, so I'm curious, like, when you think about that, what were those big things that you got there that you were able to then quickly act on? So I remember going to the first conference, um, and anyone can go to this conference. It was called uh, It's Traffic Seven Profit Live. It was in June, I think it was. And they were going through all of the internet marketing tactics. So, you know, if you don't know how your ads should look, go on Facebook.com, scroll down to the part where it says ad tra uh, transparency or whatever for that page. And then you can see all the ads that they have rolled out for every business who wants ads on Facebook. And it was like, you know, create a swipe file, find eight competitors in your industry, look at that and then pull all the ads that they're running and see what you see that lines up across each of them. Okay. Now it's your turn to go and make ads that look similar. Um, and you know not necessarily copy their ads but make them fit for your business and so that was like one of the tips that i got another tip that i got was around how to how to price your business you know if you are a service-based business you know this is standard for this and you, you shouldn't do this and this is how you create a funnel um i learned about funnels i didn't know about funnels before i learned about um how to brand a business and that part i'm still learning and so it was just so many tactical things that I didn't know before. Um, and I found out in that community, when anytime I had a question, I could post it in a Facebook group and they would all kind of like fill it up with answers. So sometimes you can Google things and you can, but you can't necessarily get um, opinions or advice from Google it's per se, you know, per personal experience or whatever from qualified people. Because sometimes you don't know how qualified the information is. You just know it's at the top of the SEO search. Um, so that's what the group did for me. Amazing. And so are you at, when you look at that now, do those groups continue to play a role or are you looking to, as your business grows, finding different groups to take you to that next level? So I'm, I'm still a part of that group because I think that network is important, especially for the people coming through it, for entrepreneurs who are like me, um, who didn't reflect, like they didn't have a whole lot of resources. But I am looking to join other communities. So we were listed on Forbes 30 uh, last year. And because I have um, a black business and I, I hire a lot of black women um, and I'm in my like, black entrepreneur networks, like, I don't really have um, access to other communities and ethnicities. And so Forbes 30 kind of like opened that door for me to, um, to meet other people who are entrepreneurs uh, who don't necessarily look like me. And so they're having trips this year to like Botswana, and I think they're having another trip, um, Botswana in Africa, and then there's another trip somewhere down the line, and then there's a conference in Detroit. So I want to make sure I attend those, so I can kind of expand my network and get to meet other people, um, not necessarily in my space or in my industry, um, or even black, really, just people in general. And so mm -hmm. that's what I'm doing to kind of expand my network.
Mm-hmm. Um, Kimberly, what keeps you up at night? My employees, making sure I could, uh, making them happy and uh, making sure that we keep the business going. Yeah, fair enough. Because even if you make five million, right, that to me that means your business has become even riskier. Like, <laughs> and most people don't realize that they think like, oh, that's worth stable. But the difference between making three hundred thousand um, dollars as you know in the beginning versus making three hundred thousand later is that you have all this infrastructure, you know, payroll taxes, health insurance, um, just so much more infrastructure is not the same as like when you first start out and you can kind of do whatever and find the radar of the government, right? So. <laughs> there are so many more ways that it can, you know, there are so many more potential points of failure. The big, and, and so I think that is one of those challenges. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, when you think about where you are now, kind of worrying about your employees, um, and then what's on the horizon for you? And what is that bold vision that you have for your life and your business? Bold vision. You know, sometimes I talk to my husband and I'm like, you know, babe, we've done enough for a lifetime. <laughs> we, could, we could stop right now and like, we'll probably just be, you know, happy. We have our, we have each other. We have our kids, we have our family. Um, and so I guess my only, so I'm very happy what I have and I don't really need much more that's gonna I, what is it marginal um marginal utility or like um I'll be marginally happier but I don't think I'm gonna get if I had to grade myself right I think I'm gonna be plus right. if I was super fit I might be like an a minus so <laughs> making more money you know maybe me an a plus plus right um but I will say that I would like to be a billionaire um purely because I think that would be cool like, <laughs> sure would. It would it would be cool. And I don't think I would stay in Louisiana for very long because we probably give a lot of it away. <laughs> but I think, like like you said, it was a game. You know, it's like, can I get there? I think I can. Okay, what do I have to do to get there? And I'm basically just chopping down trees to get there. Amazing. And it's funny that you use that analogy of chopping down trees because, uh, you know, when we look at that less than 2% um, hitting that, uh, you know, 7 million or uh, – million dollars and beyond in their business that really is the trailblazers so you truly are chopping the trees down to find the path to a billion dollars (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much it's amazing and you know i just i i really am so inspired by this conversation and the fact that you're doing all of this and um and just figuring it out as you go, it's, it's extraordinary. So uh, before we wrap up, we've got a few more minutes, and I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, so you talked about your employees. You work at home. Um, how did you figure out some of that manufacturing, like the actually getting product out the door? How challenging was that piece of it for you? Honestly, most... <laughs> Most people don't do it, and I understand why, because it's such a risk. Um, it's such a risk and such a great responsibility. So we started making it in our house, and I think my first son was about three months at the time. We're like, we can't keep doing this here. Like He's learning to crawl around boxes of avocado oil or, you know, like jars of <laughs> buckets of avocado oil and boxes that we're shipping our products out in. And yeah. so it was just, it was overwhelming. Um, and so I actually joined a local incubator 
here in Chicago that's a manufacturing incubator. So most people own different, they rent different units in the building. And that was great because you had all the manufacturing hookups you would need. So when I say hookups, I mean, there's a certain kind of voltage you would need to run a certain kind of machine, right? And so we moved there um, initially to kind of make our flaxseed gel because our flaxseed gel kind of has to be cooked like a regular type of food. So we really needed access to a kitchen. And we couldn't really go into a bakery um, because you need like a, a chef's license or something like that to cook in one of those incubators for food. So we found the manufacturing facility. They let us join. We had like a thousand square feet initially. And we basically set up a kitchen. So the kitchen already had the hookups for like the water line and the piping and whatever. So that was like perfect. Um, but if we didn't have it, they would have cost like $12,000, I think. And the machine we ended up buying to help us make the flaxseed gel end up costing, I mean, price at retail was like $20,000, but we got it uh, refurbished on PayPal for like $5,000. Yeah. Um, but I'm sorry, not PayPal, eBay. We used PayPal to, to make, make the payment. And so that was like our first step into manufacturing. Um, and we only used that machine for the first year. Then we got an investment um, and we ended up buying like an immersion blender. So it was like a $20,000 mixer, um, but it can immerse things like, like your pop, right? Your soda is, yeah. it has lots of things in it, but it feels like water or liquid, right? But that's because the sugars and everything um, are properly immersed into the blend. And so it feels, it's really clean. You can't really see anything if you spilled it, right? When I say it's not separating, so it's properly emulsified. That's what that means um, for anyone who didn't know what I was talking about. And so we started buying those kinds of things later. But it was, it's truly, and then there's this whole like regulation process that most people just have no clue about. Um, it's called good manufacturing practices. And so we have to implement those along the way as well, which is why your products have UPC codes and why they have um, dates on them um, for when they were made or when they would go bad. And then you keep all kind of batch records and it's just, it's, it's really a lot. And so that whole regulation process is just a lot to keep up with. Um, but day by day implementing it as we go has been what's gotten us this far. That is a lot. Wow. <laughs> and along the way, were there people who, you know, th those, those mentors, were, was that part of what they were able to help you figure out is, a, is that regulatory process and where do you go to buy a $20,000 emulsifying thingamabop? Yes. So in my mastermind, um, I met someone um, who, when we first started manufacturing, she was like, oh, what about, have you implemented GMP? I was like, what's that? <laughs> And then she was like, oh, no, Kim, this is what you need to do. And so that, I think, was worth the entire cost of the mastermind because I feel like that was the insurance that I needed, right? Then I have another friend who I met from my very first business when I was just doing content. She's a cosmetic chemist. And so I've been able to kind of ask her along the way. She has other clients and stuff in retail. And I've asked her questions like, you know, um, this isn't working for me uh, on the scientist side. Like, this is not properly... Um, blending or it's not stabilized and she's like oh are you adding such and such and i was like oh no i forgot i need to add that or she would say you know don't invest in that pumping line that's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars like you can probably get one cheaper for 50. i was like oh okay didn't know that or she might say don't go into retail yet because it's basically it's a whole retail is not what it seems so you know it's better if you can control all your own sales your own margins and everything online so try to do that for as long as you can before you go into retail so these are all things that i got from along the way and i couldn't say that this one thing changed the business forever 
but having all these different resources um, have definitely benefited us for sure. Really amazing. And I think just that um, curiosity and attention to all of the details that, um, uh, you know, make up a business is really extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <clears throat> well, I do want to say thank you for your time. This has been um, an interesting and inspiring conversation. And I really look forward to following your progress and celebrating. Um, all of your milestones along the way, especially that billion dollar one. I think that will be a nice celebration with Kim. It will be. It will be a lot of fun. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, I, and so, oh, before we go, tell me, uh, tell our guests, where our listeners, where they can go and check you out um, so that we can they, can, they can see these videos and order your product. So you can check us out at chromex.com. That's where you can order all our products for chromex on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the above. And my personal Instagram is Kim and Tim Lewis. So it's me and my husband. If you want to follow us on Instagram. Amazing. I will also share all of that in the show notes. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for tuning in to Breakthrough. Be sure to join Sarah Roach Lewis again with another inspiring interview next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.